Hello and welcome back. My name is Cornelius McGrath and this is The Junto, a space where game changers from all over the globe gather to have the conversations that truly matter. My guest today is Marty Rogers. Marty's the senior managing partner and market unit lead for Accenture's DC office. I met Marty many years ago at our alma mater Notre Dame during a board of trustee meeting on campus. We've been ships passing in the night ever since, so I've admired him mostly from afar, but always found him to be kind, honest, and compelling. It was a real treat to get to sit down with Marty all these years later, and we did so in a pretty iconic locale, having this conversation in the executive boardroom of Accenture's global CEO, Julie Sweet. Marty's been at Accenture 25 years and leads 22,000 people, so we covered a lot of ground, particularly how Marty thinks about the future of education, the return to office, how he plans to earn his people's commute, and why he believes life is a full contact sport. Without further ado, here's Marty Rogers. Well, guys, we'll get into it. Marty uh, Rogers, welcome to the show. So good to see you. It's been a, been a while. I feel like we've been passing each other in the Morrison for the last five years. Uh, but that's a, that's a it's it's part of the nature of our of our reality, right? Like we're we're always moving, we're always going. There's always lots of things to do and impact. And uh, COVID or not, we gotta we gotta keep making things happen. So it's all good. Absolutely so good, to, good to be with you. Awesome. So set the scene for us. We've just gone on this amazing tour. But where are we? And for everyone at home listening, what room are we in currently? Uh, we are currently in the uh, executive boardroom for our global CEO at Accenture, uh, Julie Sweet. Um, who has been one of my uh, mentors and role models and, and um, one of the most uh, amazing leaders that I've had the privilege to work with. And I've worked with a lot of them. Um, and uh, we just went on a tour of our uh, new location here in Washington, D.C. at 699 14th Street. The uh, office here is a, a reflection of our commitment to uh, the city and to the region. Um, it is... Uh, an investment in our clients and in our community partners and in our people. And it is reflective of uh, intention to uh, continue to grow and have impact uh, in all the different spheres that we ha that we play in, whether that's uh, for-profit, non-profit, or government, and increasingly the uh, convergence of industries and, con and increasingly the public-private partnerships that are so necessary to have impact on the greatest challenges of our time, whether that's education, the environment, social justice, uh, healthcare, or, or all the, all the uh, other issues that, that we are facing collectively. So um, it's a really great place to be, really energetic place to be, uh, beautiful place to be. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think the last thing I would just say about it is the office is um, welcoming to all, um, uh, reflective of our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's also a welcoming place uh, where we want our clients, our community partners, uh, and our employees to come and uh, uh, have impact and and um, really be in a beautiful space and um, uh, feel a sense of presence and a sense of place and a sense of uh, sense of grace when they're here. Totally. You said um, the office was designed with the idea of earning your commute. What yes. does that mean? Yeah, well, uh, post-COVID, uh, I think a variety of different um, enterprises of all sorts, including the federal government right here in Washington, D.C., but across all of our different sectors, we've been trying to figure out what is the right environment for our employees um, in terms of a hybrid environment, 
uh, trying to figure out how do we get our folks back into the office um, when they're ready to be back in the office um, and encouraging that from the standpoint of coming together as a place where um, you can uh, learn your craft and you can um, develop skills and you can be apprenticed uh, in uh, consulting. And so we're trying to create these destination offices, if you will, that will make uh, folks uh, want to uh, come to the office and uh, be with their colleagues. Um, I'm a big believer that uh, we have to create uh, the space and the grace for people to connect, collaborate, and collide. Um, and it is only when you get that chance to um, have those connections, uh, build those those bonds of trust and mutual affection. Um, it's only when you have those random collisions, right, where you know the best person in the world at um, putting in cloud ERP bumps into the best person in the world in terms of um, consulting to CFOs. And when those two folks randomly bump into each other, they come up with an idea that creates a new innovation and a new invention that's uh, going to change an industry or a sector or, or create a new joint venture or whatever the case may be. And so that's what this space is about. We want our folks to come back when they're comfortable coming back. Um, providing them optimal flexibility, but encouraging them to, to come back and, and be with others. How do you measure the ROI of a place like this? Uh, well, once we open it, <laughs> that'll be, uh, uh, we'll, we'll measure it by um, a few things, right? One is, um, is this a place that our folks are coming to? Is it a folks that, place that folks are using? Uh, we'll also see how many of our clients are coming through. Uh, we'll see how many of our community partners are coming through and using the space. Uh, we designed this uh, with much more of a a conference center space idea and a hotel space where, uh, again, we want everybody to feel welcome to come and utilize the space. So we've already sent um, invitations out to uh, a lot of our different community partners and we'll, we'll have a big client opening and hopefully we'll get uh, some elected officials and other folks here when we do the opening. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, this isn't going to, there won't be some magic switch, right, where everybody suddenly comes to the office, but gradually over time you'll see activity increase and then you'll see the mix and the uh, interplay and the interchange between um, uh, our clients, our community partners, and our employees taking place here. Um, and that's where you get you, that's where you get your ROI from. Well, ultimately for us, right, like, you know, we're, we're north of 11,000 people just in this region, um, you know, growing, uh, growing rapidly. Um, and for us, the biggest um, challenge is always about um, attracting uh, the best and the brightest and retaining the best and the brightest. And for as complex as our model is and complex as the competi competitive landscape is, at the end of the day, it's still a really fundamental and simple premise in consulting, which is the firm with the best people wins. And so this is about attracting the best people, keeping the best people, uh, engaging the best people, helping them learn, grow, and develop, and have having those meaningful interactions with each other, uh, with the community, and with uh, with their clients. Wonderful. So we have an educator in the room who has to go and <clears throat> teach some phenomenal children. So Lex, I thought you'd weigh in with at least one question before you have to jump to Marty. Yeah, so uh, fantastic question. So many different ways I'd, I'd, I want to dive in to answer that. So first thing I would just say, uh, one, we have at Accenture a commitment to um, diversity, equity, and inclusion that is reflective of 
uh, a journey and a journey that is uh, continual, that is uh, one of courage, but also one of humility. And we've been on the journey for a while. Uh, we've had lots of um, uh, great things happen, lots of challenging things happen, but it is a journey, right? And there's going to be ups and downs as you go. But we are committed to diversity, equity, inclusion as a uh, business imperative for us. It is reflective of our core values, and it is uh, something that uh, we weave into literally everything we do, uh, whether that's accessibility into technology, whether it's who we recruit, um, whether it's uh, um, how we go to market, whether it's our commitment to supplier diversity or what we're doing in corporate citizenship, whether it's uh, how we interact and show up at our clients, uh, all the way across the board. And we've been honored um, this year, we were named the most diverse and inclusive firm in North America by Diversity Inc. In the three of the last five years, Refinitiv, um, formerly Nielsen Refinitiv, um, has named us the most diverse and inclusive firm on the planet, right? So it's very much a part and parcel of who we are. And hopefully you saw some of that when you saw the, the office tour. Um, I would answer the question around the challenges that we have faced coming out of COVID from a couple different perspectives. One. Uh, we look at it as not just something that's affecting our employees, but something that is affecting uh, how we uh, interact in our relationships with our uh, with the broader community and with our clients. So let me address all three of those, if it's okay. First, in the broader community, uh, and especially right here in Washington, D.C., uh, we've been very engaged in trying to assist um, uh, across the board, whether uh, that is... Uh, the public schools or the charter schools um, with uh, improving education in the district um, under the leadership of many uh, great folks uh, in the district from um, uh, the, the government to City Bridge to the NAF Academy schools, a whole variety of different folks. We've seen real, real growth in terms of the uh, public schools here, their outcomes, their test scores and all the rest. Um, but then when COVID hit, um, we lost a lot of those gains, right? And part of that was the digital divide. Part of that was um, um, just the, the challenge of the home environment that folks are going into. Um, and you know, now we're in a situation where um, we have to work collectively uh, across the business community, across um, the nonprofit community, and, and with the, the public school system and the charter school system here to help make sure that we uh, facilitate the closing of that gap. And that gap is still challenging uh, in large measure because of um, a um, a uh, dip in the number of teachers um, and the ability to retain teachers uh, in the community. And so uh, we've got to work together to try to solve that and to continue to advance and redouble our efforts uh, to close those um, uh, less than productive years or not as productive as we would have liked years um, <clears throat> to help build the workforce that we're going to need here and here locally. Um, we do a number of different initiatives in that regard, uh, some of which I mentioned, um, but it is um, uh, a lot of catching up to do would be the easiest thing to say. Second, on the point around, you know, as we think about it uh, for our own employees, a few things I would mention. Um, one, our uh, employee base is changing. Um, and so um, we have uh, taken a very conscious effort uh, trying to, in part tied to our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, we've taken a very conscious effort to say, 
um, the uh, workforce of the future, and in particular our workforce, uh, has to be more diverse. And part of that diversity has to include uh, creating uh, opportunity for folks from uh, coming from differing backgrounds and differing educational backgrounds. And so um, starting a few years ago, we developed a national apprenticeship program that we do with another company called Aon. Uh, we've created apprenticeship networks all across the country, including here in D.C., called the Greater Washington Apprenticeship Network. We're very focused on creating opportunity for folks that um, don't have four-year degrees and to go and look at all of our jobs and say, you know what, do we really have to mandate that that's a four-year degree in order to have that job? Um, or can it be a two-year degree? Or can it be just a high school degree? And then can we get folks that are in these apprenticeship programs, um, skill them up, uh, give them the soft skills, give them the, the hard skills, get them certifications. And then most importantly, after they've done the learn and earn period for anywhere from a year to three years, depending on the program, they come and they join us um, and they join us as, <clears throat> as full employees that have a career ladder. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So as opposed to just joining and, um, you know, you're going to be in a dead end job, you're actually joining as an analyst and you have the ability to climb all the way to the CEO. Um, our CEO, Julie Sweet, says all the time when she meets our apprentices, I'm looking forward to the day that one of you is going to be our CEO. Um, but that's been a, a huge, and again, I'm, I talked about this journey of courage and humility. Um, you know, when we first looked at our jobs, we were like, okay, every job needs to have a four-year degree. And then it was like, is that really the case? Do our EAs need to have a four-year degree? Do our, uh, does, does there, you know, could you actually create a tech apprenticeship? Um, and so that's what we've done over the last several years. We're now up to the point where in North America, uh, we have made a public commitment that 20% of our new hires are going to be folks uh, that are coming through the apprenticeship network. Yeah. Marty, um, <clears throat> I will say my friends working at consulting firms have kind of talked about, you know, sort of what Alexia alluded to, this gap in the potential of young talent, people who are not in the office during COVID. How are you guys kind of addressing that? Because so much of being able to speak to a client, to be able to work in a team, to be able to think critically comes from the socialization of groups. Mm -hmm. So are you seeing the same thing? If so, how are you actually addressing that? And, and how long is it going to take you to get those individuals up to scratch. So to your question about, you know, how do we close the gap with our own employees um, and in, you know, what are we doing in consulting in general to, to kind of make up for um, the COVID years? Uh, a lot of our learning, as you described, has to happen uh, in person. It's also uh, the other dimension that you don't want to miss is that's also how you create um, true relationships with your clients and so you have catching up to do on both of those fronts. Um, so we do find our folks are slowly but surely traveling more. Um, we're, uh, as our clients are opening back up, uh, we're trying to be there on, on client site uh, as well. Um, I agree with you, that's where most of the learning does take place. Um, you, you really can't get it through a, a web broadcast or you know um, uh, just digital interaction. You've, you've ultimately got to break bread with folks. You've ultimately got to go to meetings with folks. And so part of the reason we're trying to get people back into the office is so that they can, you know, be in team meeting rooms and see how, uh, uh, a deck is put together and to see how a pitch is put together and to practice doing that together. Um, and so 
that craft, that apprenticeship around consulting skills, um, it's a contact sport. And the only way we're going to do it is to um, uh, get more and more of our people to have the opportunity to go with our leaders. Um, you know, the number one thing that our young people ask for, you know, when we talk about earning their commute, yes, they want um, uh, great spaces to be in, but ultimately they want to have interaction with leadership because um, they know that that's where the key lessons that they're going to need to continue to grow and advance their careers are going to come from. Totally. It's funny you use the, it is a contact sport line. We were at the the British Ambassador's residence yesterday and Dane Pierce is, is, is kind of famous for saying diplomacy is a contact sport. And so she became the first female ambassador for, for Britain to the US during COVID. And as soon as the restrictions dropped, she was hosting people as much as she could. And you could feel it in her staff yesterday of just how much they wanted to engage, even with us, right? We're not running heads of state just yet, but yeah. we felt invited in and that's incredible. Yeah. And, and I think people have been missing that, right? And, yeah. um, you know, I, I, the other the other part that I would just add, um, we joke about earning the commute. I actually like my commute, right? It, it allows me to decompress from my work. It allows me to uh, get reframed and refocused on my family when I'm showing up at my at the doorstep uh, of, mm. of my home, right? And it allows me some quiet time to think, right? So, um, I'm you know I I think all of us are craving um, that human interaction. Um, we're going to keep trying to meet our folks where they are. We're not you know throwing down a mandate or a gauntlet. Um, we're not. Uh, it's not really in our core values to say something like, you know. You know, you know, show up or we'll consider you terminated or any of that. That's just not who we are. Yeah. Um, but we're going to keep trying to, to get folks back. And I think the more people come back, the more they'll appreciate, you know, it'll, you used the term earlier of ROI, they'll have their own personal ROI, right? And they'll see that, um, you know, it's through my network, it's through those relationships, it's through learning that craft, um, how much easier it is to learn the craft when you're in person than it is when you're trying to, you know, uh, watch a, a video doing it, right? Um, so I think it'll kind of sell itself over time. Uh-huh. And then the last thing I'll just say, you know, I, I go around and I travel all the time and um, meet with our folks and uh, do events with our folks. There is a, a palpable energy um, and a connection that um, I think is really, really important that... Um, you know, in our broader society, there's this, you know, for all of the connected devices and all of the uh, ways that digital brings us together, there's still this pervading sense that I think is increasing in our society, both around um, a sense of loneliness and, um, uh, and a sense of, um, you know, really needing to make sure that we're checking in on folks' mental health. Um, you know, yesterday was Mental Health uh, Awareness Day and, you know, being live gives us that chance to make sure that uh, in a much fuller way uh, that you can't really, again, get through the web. Uh, so to check in. So you've been here since 97, correct? Yep. What haven't you seen yet? What haven't I seen? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I, I, um, I've been here since uh, coming out of grad school. I um, thought I was going to be here for two years and then roll out. Um, but it's been a great opportunity to um, the the people. You know, if you ask anybody, they'll tell you, always tell you the people are why they stay, and that's truly uh, the right answer. But in addition to that, my impact curve has stayed a curve, and my learning curve has stayed a curve. 
Um, and, you know, with how fast the world is changing, with um, the complexity that's out there, with the level of disruption that's out there, um, you know, we, we used to talk about this idea of black swan events. Well, now a black swan event feels like it happens every two years, right? And you have the Ukraine war, you've got, uh, you have COVID. Um, if these guys down the street don't figure out what to do with the debt ceiling, we're going to have another one, another black swan event, right? So um, it, it's, this is a place where given all the disruption, all the change, we have a, an index that we publish um, that shows um, if you look at the disruption index that we do across all those different variables of um, socioeconomic and political and sustainability and technology and, and all the rest, um, from 2011 to 2016, it increased by 4%. Um, it, that same index from 2017 to 2022 increased by 200%, right? And so there's all this incredible disruption. And um, over the course of the last 25 years, I haven't found a better place to uh, be part of changing the world and a better place of changing the country and a better place of changing our clients and helping them deal with that disruption uh, and achieve their missions and uh, grow and lead a lot of people along the way and along the journey. So been a great run, great uh, time. And um, as long as I'm learning, uh, you know, uh, and growing, that's ultimately, you know, a key part of the definition of life. And for me, my impact curve is always a function of, you know, the fact that I'm in this job, uh, does it allow me to have more impact on my family and friends, community in the world, and uh, our clients? And uh, if A plus B plus C keeps going up, then I'm in the right spot. Totally. You've got young kids. Um, yeah, they're not so young anymore. They're, they're, growing, ra they're growing rapidly. Yeah, so. growing rapidly. So not so young. Um, you're also dealing with the products of the, the schools that this country and the world has. Mm -hmm. And you also sit on the board of some of probably the most influential academic institutions in the world. Mm -hmm. So I, I got to think you've got a good take on what the, the future of education and the future of schooling could look like or should look like. And um, I'm just wondering if you could opine on that. Hmm. Um, well, so, so first, um, let's start with higher ed. Um, I think in higher ed, um, number one, um, it is incumbent upon the United States uh, to double down on our investment in higher ed, our differentiation in higher ed, uh, and to acknowledge that it has been a competitive differentiation for us on a global basis, and it is the envy of the rest of the world, period, full stop. And the extent to which we fail to do that, and the extent to which um, there is a sensibility of um, we're not going to continue to invest in our higher ed educational system um, or there's a, a battle over that system between the left and the right um, and it becomes politicized um, is the extent to which um, I believe we hurt our own competitiveness as, as a country, both in terms of the um, being a bridge to the rest of the world the quality and the caliber of those of the students that are graduating that we need in our enterprises and in the intellectual property and uh, in inventions and in uh, the capabilities that are coming out of those higher ed institutions. Um, second uh, key point 
is I think COVID, you know, of all the different um, industries and all the different um, uh, types of enterprises, uh, hospitals, higher ed, uh, and a handful of others, travel and hospitality, were the most disrupted, right? And so it did allow for and cause um, universities to have to think differently about their mission, their purpose, and how they fulfilled it. Um, I also believe that uh, in net-net, I think that is actually a healthy thing uh, for those universities. And then the third and final point I would just make in terms of this moment and where we are, um, I believe universities um, are rising and realizing uh, a greater expectation that they're going to be um, part of uh, improving our workforce and tied to our workforce and creating opportunities for students to um, learn while doing. And they are also realizing that they have to be more fully part of their communities and part of improving the K to 12 system. And so I think all three of those dynamics um, are setting the stage for a change in higher education, but an important one uh, that's gonna make it more relevant, not less relevant, um, and improve the ROI uh, as you go forward. Um, you know, there's all, again, there's all types of debates about higher education right now. Um, I think debate isn't a bad thing, but at the end of the day, you know, when you look at, um, those who have a degree and those who don't, um, the opportunities for wealth creation, the opportunities for quality of life, um, you know, this should still be something that uh, we find important in our society and that we encourage folks to pursue. Totally. And your time at KIPP, time at TFA I'm just curious like what what did those experiences teach you and what do you think the next KIPP and TFA looks like hmm. well so to let me tackle those separately so TFA is part of uh, Teach for America uh, is uh, part of a broader effort um, that I've long been committed to and dedicated to and that's this idea of national and community service um, I was honored to work on Capitol Hill to help get the AmeriCorps bill done. Uh, TFA is part of the AmeriCorps network. Um, and um, at the time, the individual that I was working for um, had uh, been a co-founder of the Peace Corps. And he always believed that the Peace Corps should be brought home to serve American families and American communities uh, at scale. And that similar to the Peace Corps, which talks about the third goal of the Peace Corps, which is as amazing and as impactful and as important th the, that the work is that you're going to have internationally during those two years, even more important is the personal transformation that you're going to go through and the impact that you're going to have when you come back. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you'll have lived abroad, you'll have an experience abroad, and then you'll bring that back to be of service uh, here in, in, in the U.S. when you come back. That same third goal idea applies to AmeriCorps, and it applies to Teach for America. And so Teach for America challenges young people, uh, same with the Alliance for Catholic Education. It challenges young people to go to serve in underserved uh, educational community, underserved communities where uh, educational opportunity isn't as uh, robust. It gives that opportunity to teach and brings their talent to bear um, in, those, in those environments. And once they go through that experience, they're often so transformed that they stay committed 
one, to this idea of education reform, and two, actually, many cases, uh, stay involved as teachers and principals. And if you look across D.C., just this one example here, um, many, many of the principals at one point, uh, and I, I don't know what the most recent stats are, but at one point we had something like 17 or 18 different principals that had been part of TFA that are now principals in the city. Um, and that whole idea of um, uh, I'm going to do these two years of service and then I'm going to dedicate my life to this broader cause and purpose uh, and to helping um, uh, educate and provide opportunity through education uh, is a really powerful, powerful thing. Lastly, on your question around KIPP, um, uh, KIPP is a, a national charter school network uh, that o operates here in D.C. Um, we've been very supportive of it uh, and this whole idea of um, their commitment to uh, knowledge is purpose and education reform that every child can uh, have the opportunity to learn and grow and, and go to college. Um, and... Um, you know, they've been doing a great job across uh, across the country, and they're one of many different models um, that we that we support. Um, so uh, we support the public schools here, and in particular the NAF academies. We uh, support the um, KIPP uh, DC. We support the um, uh, Cristo Rey Network, which is one of the, the work-study Catholic school programs here. Um, just believing that the more opportunity that we can provide kids all the better. I know you got to jump. So my final question is what's next for you? Um, and how do you balance the, just the sheer number of boards and responsibilities you on? We were kind of joking via text. I said, I really just want to know how you lead 17,000 people when you go, it's actually now 22. So I'm just curious what's next for, for Marty Rogers and how are you thinking about the rest of 2023? <laughs> Uh, well, I think that I think everybody's uh, wondering what the ec economy holds more broadly for us as we go forward. Um, I don't really worry about what's next. I worry about what's kind of right in front of me and what are we what are we trying to to tackle and get done. Uh, there's so many needs that uh, our our clients have. There's so many needs that our community has, um, and so you know just tackle those um, tackle those as they come. Um, I am. Uh, I am privileged and honored to be, uh, to have a chance to serve and to make a difference. Um, and just want to keep, keep trying to do that and, and maximize impact. So. Well, Marty, thank you so much for the time. Absolutely. Go Irish and hopefully see you this for Go Irish. Take care. Hello everyone. It's Cornelius. Just two more things before you go. First, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate the show or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. It's a small but mighty powerful action that makes a world of difference for the reach of the Junto's platform. Second, if you find yourself thinking, wow, I would have loved to be in the room for conversations like this, then you should consider becoming a member of the Junto. The Junto is a space made for those who want to teach what they do know and learn what they don't alongside some of the brightest minds in the world today. It's a peer-to-peer -peer driven community committed to the exploration of evergreen ideals, collaboration, and admitting that we don't yet have all the answers that we're seeking. Members have the opportunity to attend our exclusive quarterly virtual retreat and get access to our quarterly digital publication called 1727. Not to mention countless life-changing conversations with new friends, peers, and mentors that you'll cherish forever. Anyway, that's all for now. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.